Welcome to Culture Crawl ATX Podcast. I'm your co-host, Michael Ward Jr. And this is Donald Scott II. Actually, you know what? I have a question. Um, yeah. What is a second-line worker? Because I, have I don't think that's a real phrase. I just used it. <laughs> okay, well, well, how do you, um, when you say you're a frontline worker, to me, a frontline worker, like I am a nurse on a med surge unit helping lead the campus, on, or like, well, I'm really leading the campus on this initiative, a lot of it. <clears throat> Um, but I'm not going in like for today anyways, to date, and it could happen any day. I'm not the person going in and providing the direct patient care. The nurses on a particular unit are, but I'm the one that's teaching them how to do everything. I'm the one that's leading the response to things and responding to the stuff from the CDC and like creating the system for them to do it in. So I, I guess, um, if you don't mind right? If, if you could provide for us just a little bit of your experience with this COVID um, outbreak and how it's changed what your work was before the CDC got involved, I guess, and then like what it's like right now, that would be... Oh, okay, I can do this. Yeah. I'll say something nice and controversial for you to get into. So by all means, you have the floor, please, you know, let us know what, what does that difference look like and what, what has been your experience? Do I need to introduce myself? When if do you, you start? Like if you would like to. It, yeah, we started. You're free. You're free to talk. Oh, okay. Well, I'm a nurse working um, at a major um, urban hospital um, in the city of San Francisco, actually. And since COVID started, it's been nothing but chaos to our daily workflow around here. And um, I mean, it's been since I started getting involved in the project back in January before we had our first case um, happen in the city. So I was actually burned out as a healthcare worker before this became a national crisis because at the hospital level, we were already responding to it. We already knew that um, there was an infectious disease outbreak heading our way and we needed to manage it at the hospital level. So the panic started back in January and it just hasn't slowed down since then. It's only gotten bigger and bigger. But when we talk about the burnout from healthcare, it started before it was even happening at the national level. And so we've been in this, we've been in this for a long time. Um, and it's really disappointing now as I just, I take everything so personal is what's happened. So as I watch people respond to this in our communities or on the news or whatever, like you can't help but to, to, walk past people and see them not wearing a mask as a personal insult to you. So the grief that you're seeing at work is just amplified when you feel so unsupported in your communities right now. Um, not to say there's not a lot of really good stuff going on, but, um, but there's just a lot of emotions um, from day one until now. You're typically not exposed as a healthcare provider. You don't have to risk your own um, health. We're used to going into infectious disease disease rooms. We work with patients with TB or meningitis or pneumonia, but we have the proper gear to prevent ourselves from exposures. And we're used to taking risks. We're used to doing blood draws on patients with HIV and getting like, I myself have had um, an accidental uh, needle stick and we know how to respond to those things. And we usually our risks are calculated that we're taking. And right now it's not calculated. We don't have the proper PPE and the community um, is so divided that it doesn't even, it just doesn't feel right. Um, and I think, 
I think the political climate combined with the fact that this is a true pandemic that is being branded as the flu by so many people, it's just, I mean, it's pulled us together as healthcare workers, but it's divided us in so many bizarre ways too. Um, and I don't know what, if you guys have particular questions about the experience, if you want me to get into the weeds of it, um, I guess I will share like the, the PPE situation is not over. It's a worldwide deficit of gowns, goggles, um, N95s. They're all supposed to be single time use for patients and we're re-wearing them. We're hanging them outside of rooms. We're going from patient rooms that are um, being ruled out for COVID. And because we don't have enough gear, we're re-wearing that protective gear into rooms who are positive and then re-wearing it and going back to one that's still getting ruled out. That's a huge no-no historically. That's a huge violation of everything you ever learned in your medical training. Um, you're wearing stuff for, and it's not just COVID, it, it, it puts an increased risk for other infectious diseases because you're doing that with patients that have C. diff. You're carrying you know, your mask around for patients who have TB. Um, and so it's just, it's just, I don't understand how our country hasn't come together and actually deployed our Defense Act and have everybody out there making this gear on a national level right now because it is just such a failure of epic proportions that I would never have imagined in my lifetime. Um, and it's that kind of stuff that you feel vulnerable your own health, you feel vulnerable emotionally, and um, you just gotta stick with it. And that's, that's kind of my, um, my feelings towards it right now, so to say. So I know that um, nurses, I guess I don't know, but I, I, when people have talked about nursing in the past, right, before you guys have become the heroes of the day, it was like, well, nurses only have to work three days a week and then they're off for four days. So the work can't be that difficult. Mm -hmm. um, how do you feel about the way people felt about you and your profession then versus how they feel about you and your profession now? And do you think that it is authentic? Um, I, I do think there's an authenticity because of how many people are touched by this. Hmm. Um, so I do think there's a genuine response of gratefulness for, for what we do in like a really warm way. Um, that being said, there's also a portion of the population where I'm seeing some of the most bizarre responses of people throwing bleach on nurses or thinking they're contaminated, not letting them on buses or, or yelling at nurses in ways I've never seen before either. But to, to kind of juxtapose that to how it was before the pandemic, um, gosh, I feel like people, um, I feel like people, again, who just didn't know are the people who would say it's kind of easy to work 36 hours a week. Oh, you're a nurse. You don't bring your work home with you. You can only do it while you're at work. And that minimalizes the work of a nurse. I can, I can only think the people who would say that are people who haven't had to deal with um, like emotions and healthcare and loss before because a nurse's job doesn't end after 12 hours a 12 hour shift. You might've watched somebody die on that shift. You might've been the last person to unplug their monitor. You were the last person to give them the morphine. You take that grief home with you. Maybe it's not a computer work that you're taking home with you, but you're managing your grief and your experiences and either setting it aside or, um, or grieving, whatever you're doing so that you can be present with your own family. So it's not over after 12 hours. So 
I just think that there's, um, there's just stereotypes. There's stereotypes with every job. So yeah, there's a good demographic of the population that would say, oh, it's just 36 hours, whatever. And um, it makes, it would make me angry, but I also am like, oh, you just don't even know. Wait till you're hospitalized. <laughs> you'll see, you'll see what it really means. Um, and I think right now people are just starting to see what it really means. And I think it's genuine as, as, as people um, open their arms up to the profession right now. Um, so, you know, I'm in Texas uh, and I, we wear masks in public, um, but you know, tech, and, and we laugh about it, but it's serious and it, it will probably have a drastic consequence, maybe, we'll see. But like, you can't really tell Texans what to do. You can make a request and maybe you can, um, you can actively encourage, right? But Texans as a, as a culture inside of the state lines uh, are proud to be quote unquote independent and, and, um, and of their own mind. So what that means is we are one of the first states to open back up. Uh, I was in Houston <clears throat> and it looks like a city that, that never even really knew what coronavirus was except, you know, so Houston opened up, um, they opened up public parks, they opened up restaurants for the most part, right, with some restrictions, but people were still out. <clears throat> and we were at a park, um, and as we were walking into the park, someone from the city came and locked the gate and put a sign up that said, due to COVID-19, this park is now closed. I think from an information perspective, right? Um, people aren't being told the truth because if this park is closed, then really that means that the restaurants should be closed and we probably should have closed the grocery stores and we should not be talking about people going to movie theaters or, or bars or restaurants or sporting events, right? So, so there's a communication disconnect, but then there's also like a, a, a proper lie that's being told. Um, I'm wondering what is happening in, in the Bay Area specifically and, and you know, like San Francisco. Is, is San Francisco abiding by the same rules as Oakland? Um, is it the same in San Diego? And then as you see other states open up, are you seeing, uh, are you seeing cases of deaths increase? Like based on the CDC guidelines or any internal numbers yeah. that you guys may be seeing. You just said so many things with your lead up to your question. Um, to, before I get into that, to speak to the, um, the various misinformation that's out there, something that has been consistent. Um, well, I feel fortunate because I'm working with infection control now. So um, I am directly partnered with our infection control team right now um, as a nurse. So I I have this connection to the truth, to a source of truth, which is our epidemiologists and um, infectious disease doctors. And I feel like I've had a constant in, in my um, feeding of knowledge and um, I have an understanding of what the CDC is doing and why it might feel like so much misinformation, but it's very strategic in terms of the frequency of change is happening at the frequency of um, of what we're learning in the medical community. Um, 
the misinformation is coming from the political leaders and people who choose to be believers of science and not and then not believe science miscellaneously. There's a lot of inconsistency adopting what our physicians are saying and then how politicians morph it into practice. That's why you might see a, a park closed, but a restaurant open. Uh, a medical profession professional would say, well, it's the risk of, of exposure in a closed proximity um, without a mask on. So deploy that how you will. The risk isn't changing. Like we know where the risk is heightened. It's heightened when you have gatherings and when you breathe, share each other's air. Um, how that gets deployed is a whole other issue in terms of practice and prevention. Um, but then when you talk about the San Francisco response versus other areas, I do think the whole Bay Area in general is very aligned in how we're responding. I don't see it much different from, I, and now that this being said, I'm quarantining myself a lot of the time, so I'm not spending time in all these other areas and I'm not going out. But the vibe I'm getting is that we're collectively unified in the Bay Area. And what's really, really amazing about San Francisco, um, if you look at um, rates of death per thousand people, the city of San Francisco, a huge metropolitan area, we've had a total of, to date, if you go to the Department of Public Health website, 41 deaths total, total for the city of San Francisco. New York City today, I don't, I can't break it out specifically between um, Manhattan itself and the rest of New York because they combine the numbers together, but I, they're averaging like 80 to 100 deaths a day of which I think they finally got below 40 for Manhattan or close to 40 per day just yesterday. So we haven't even, like the amount of deaths that are happening in Manhattan per day is what San Francisco has had total since this started. That to me is so remarkable. Like when you start like comparing the frequency of deaths, like we took, um, we shut down our city, I think a couple weeks earlier than other places too. And I mean, who knows? We don't really know yet whether that's a reason why. Like we don't know truly if correlation is causation in these cases where the death rates are lower in different metropolitan areas. But it's worth noting, it's pretty incredible. And um, Los Angeles is higher than San Francisco in terms of death rates, but um, it's still one on the lower end as compared to other metropolitan areas. Um, and I think that's a response from our, our political leadership more than anything else. But again, I mean, to each their own on, on why. We can just say what some of the facts are, which is if you compare when we closed, we're also not as dense and we're still following the rules and, and, and we're not kind of recklessly opening to the same degree that I could say when I look at Florida or when I look at some other states where people are still, I don't know, having these crazy swim parties. You know, you know the risk of COVID is highest when you're in close proximity sharing air. Why do that? We've never, ever, ever had an instance in our lifetime where over 100,000 people die in like two to three months. That is an insane, um, that's insane. You cannot compare, and to call it the flu too, people will compare it to the flu. Please don't do that ever. Coronavirus is not the flu. I think the only similarity is you get aches and you get a fever. Um, you're not gonna start calling like, you know, you don't just start suddenly calling tuberculosis a heart attack. Like they are different, viruses like we need to stop all that talk about coronavirus being the flu i digress 
nonetheless. Did that answer your question? Yeah, for sure. So um, I'm going to make a controversial statement. And <clears throat> actually, I'll, I'll bring this up. Um, back at the end of February, uh, Michael and I were hosting a podcast as they were canceling um, South by Southwest. And at that time, nobody was really sure if that was the best idea. Um, you know, hindsight now, right? We, we do believe that it was the best idea, but then came along the, um, and also everything is closed. So now there's going to be some wide economic impact that, that affects the city of Austin very significantly. It, it already is, but it will be lasting. Um, but I bring that up to say from a, from a uh, timing perspective, you and I were talking about whether or not I should fly um, to Fort Lauderdale because it was spring break, right? And I wasn't really consuming much media at the time and Texas, and, and it just didn't seem to, in, in the media that I was consuming, coronavirus had not yet reached the proportion of, um, of um, uh, danger, right? Mm -hmm. And it was you who talked me into not going to get on the plane. I actually think that I would have been fine. And I'll bet that it would have been a great time. But, but. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. You might be right. You might be right. I, might be right. I just I knew too much and too little at the same time. <laughs> but, uh, but here, now here's a question uh, for you as a medical professional. Okay. Especially on this topic of sharing air in enclosed spaces. Spirit Airlines is right now flying airplanes from Austin to Orlando round trip for $50 when in, in the month of August. Mm -hmm. What is your opinion on that, right? Because it's, it's economic, it's risky, but then it, it is also hitting on those two points. Like your point about being an enclosed space sharing air, I've not heard it um, so succinctly stated what the risk factors are uh you know we we've got people with kids right are not going to parks we're not going to museums they've closed the schools but they haven't really said we've closed the schools because we don't want people sharing air in a closed space mm -hmm. but if the airlines are still running and the tickets are super cheap mm -hmm. what is your opinion on that well, I'll add to this. You know what they've been offering nurses too is some free cruises. So I'll put that on the, <laughs> put that on the table. Um, so okay, so everything it's like a risk stratification. We're all not going to stay like to be the safest to like prevent yourself from exposure to this. And really, like, really, we're all like most people are going to survive this and be fine. But what you're doing is you're like owning up to your community responsibility mm. by being self for your, by taking care of yourself. Because what we're doing is we're overloading our hospital systems. And when you do that, like society starts to cripple itself. Mm. So the risk of filling up our hospitals is almost worse than the risk of the disease itself in many regards. Um, and what you're doing is you are potentially, because you may or may not have it when you're getting on that plane and you may or may not get it when you go somewhere. So you're contributing to that communal sense of like irresponsibility, if you want to call it that. But 
in order for us to survive and be happy in the absence of treatment or a vaccine, and who knows how that's going to happen, we're going to have to take low risk. We're going to have to engage in low risk events and and be okay with that. So, um, so I almost I almost like don't have opinion. Well, no, I have my own opinion at this point. I I don't feel comfortable enough myself doing that. I don't feel comfortable enough sitting on a plane knowing that that's a I feel like it's still a moderate risk activity and going somewhere right now. That's just my own, how I react to that. But I'm also not going to shame somebody either entirely at this point. Um, to each their own, but know, just know that you're like the sense of, just know that your impact and your contribution to the choices you're making as you're doing it. Right. I don't know if I can say it's totally reckless to do. But we do know that you might be asymptomatic and carrying this. You might be a super spreader. You might be giving it to everyone on that plane. So are you going to be okay with that? And is, is that the right thing to do for yourself and for the people on that plane? Make your choice. Yeah, and I, I could definitely uh, agree with that just overall. It, it is a risk factor, right? So if you know you're sick, if you know you may have, if you know you've done something to further expose yourself, well, then you should take the necessary precautions to protect yourself and other people. Um, and I think that goes back to what you were talking about earlier about, you know, why are people doing this and people going out and having pool parties and, and doing this. It comes, it always comes back to just being selfish, right? Out of sight, out of mind. You don't think it's mm -hmm. happening to you or, well, it's not happening to you or maybe it's not happening to people around you. So then you're like, oh, okay, this is not what, this is not as bad as people think it is. And then we, we try to oversimplify things without fully understanding what it is and consuming other types of media. Let's go back to you, Donald. Consuming type of information that actually says, hey, you know, this is something serious. This is, this is a pandemic. This is how you could catch it. This is what you should do in order to protect yourself and others. However, as you can see from media and politics and, and different um, leaders that we have, the same message isn't being spread across society and across communities, right? So certain communities is getting specific information versus other communities, which just adds to the uh, division that we see in our society, especially of a time right now where we have elections coming up, we have trends that we're pushing for certain communities to be the majority, for certain areas to be improving. Now, this pandemic, has really reset a lot of the um, challenges and disparities that we see in various communities, not just the black community, the Hispanic community, but the rural communities, the poor communities. I mean, you name it, there's several communities that have been negatively impacted, not just from a health standpoint, um, but from a food standpoint, education standpoint, et cetera. So, well, this, um, well, this uh, just to share a little fact though, too, in San Francisco, um, of the deaths that we've had, 46% of them have been in the Hispanic or Latino community. Mm. Um, it's, it's, this disease is not fair. Yeah. Well, the disease actually is fair. Our health systems are not fair. Our, our culture is not fair. <laughs> it always goes back to, we care about businesses and politics. That has yeah. like been the foundation of our society since day one. And it continues to be, it's not education, it's not healthcare, we don't, we don't value our people, we don't see our, like, from, if I'm thinking about a, um, a country standpoint, right, you know, the, the individuals that make the country thrive is, is the people. Without the people, you don't have a country, right? So it's like, 
let's do what we need to do to ensure that our people are healthy, are strong, are, are, are the best people that they can be. But we don't, we don't think that way. We don't value the individual um, as much as we should in our society. And we see it just based on the debts. We see it on the debts toad. Because you're right. Like, why are we at 100000 Like, that makes no sense. We should have done everything in our power the moment we found out one person is dying. Because one person is dying should feel as if we are all dying, right? Because we're a collective, yes. because we're, we're all here. You know what's interesting as you say that is I had somebody who, um, uh, a friend of mine, who understood the severity of what's going on, but attended um, her first Zoom funeral last week. And then had to attend another one, another Zoom funeral because of COVID. Two Zoom funerals. And it was, it was that. It was being a part of the experience and having something happen first, firsthand that made her think, holy cow, this, this is real. It changed it. Seeing it changes it. Being at, the, at a hospital changes it. Seeing the warning signs on a patient's door and the PPE, like, hanging on the walls changes the the like there's something very tangible about those experiences that make you have a different sense of ownership and shock to people who can't identify with it um but this time it's it's also kind of interesting because everybody is getting impacted by it the economic burdens and the political reactions to this it's because we are all impacted by it it's like we forget that the, I don't understand how we're getting to a point that it's like we're deciding the pandemic is, is over. It's like the virus has not changed. We don't have a treatment. We don't have a vaccine. Rates are going up in many places. Like, why are we like, I just, I'm like, wait, why are we deciding it's over? Because the virus hasn't changed. Because businesses, businesses need to make money. We've, we've been closed long enough to have certain businesses go out of business. We've been closed long enough to have certain people die. We've been closed long enough where we can use taxes and other dollars to put back into specific companies and entities. So now it's like, okay, we've done the damage that needed to be done. Let's go ahead and reopen. I completely yeah, believe like it's not a good decision because things are going to get worse. It's going to be another spike in the fall or the winter, which is unfortunate. And uh, there's been a lot of talk about like, we need to stop that. But that goes back to the leadership, right? Because that's out of individual control. It's out of hospital control. And, and that's the unfortunate reality that I'm very confident that things are going to get worse because to your point, nothing has changed from the virus. What's very interesting is that every time we've like had a war, usually wars are, wars are affiliated with booms. People equate this to like a war. It, it's such a failure of, of our like, I don't, it's such a policy failure. You could be booming our economy. You could get everybody who's struggling right now to be contributing to this, um, to this pandemic and, and reallocating how we respond and people like managing through this. It's just crazy to me how it like, it's like, oh, we'll just let everything fail. We'll give a bunch of money to rich people. We won't have any treatment or plans for the virus and then just declare an opening because so, our policies have failed. I have a question for both of y'all. So as I think about just how we responded to COVID-19, and there hasn't been anything like this in my generation, uh, but then I, I think about 9-11 and how like 9-11 unified us because it was a foreign threat. And like in this scenario, well, coronavirus is a foreign threat, but it hasn't, you know, it unified us to some extent, but it also divided us. 
I, and I and I'm and I see the, the 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 differences between those different disasters in our country. And I think it's just because of the different leadership that we had at the time um, has been the, the huge impact on that. Uh, because if we had different leaders, we would have we would have been not more prepared, but we would have done excuse me, we would have done the necessary steps beforehand when I believe they, we first had the first case. You mentioned January, but I, I believe I read somewhere it was January, February, where notes were sent, hey, there's going to be a pandemic. This is something you should be watching out for. But steps weren't taken to be preventative. We're all react, reactive. And here we are again, you know, making a decision without, without taking into consideration the data that we already have. Oh, yeah. Well, there's no empathy coming from our, like, the White House is, has somebody that, I don't know if he has a soul. So, I mean, I feel like empathy goes a long way. If we just have a splash of that, it could pull us together. I think, it, I mean, it takes someone very special to be able to divide a country amongst a, a, a unifying threat. That is a skill. That's a skill that nobody wants to have, but we ha we, we've got that right now. <laughs> So when will the coronavirus be over? That, oh, okay. So part. it's already declared over in a lot of places. So I guess if you want to believe it's over, <laughs> you can go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I guess from a good point, right? There's a belief experience and then there's a medical experience for what over is. Now, here's the thing, right? We get the flu. We get the flu and flu shots and flu season every year. Sure, this is not uh, the flu and has nothing to do with it, but continue. This, yeah. so, so here's the question, right? Will, will we start to treat coronavirus, even though we're, we are trying, to your point, people are trying to compare the flu to the coronavirus, but as they use that language, so follows the policies, right? And the policy will say, let's open, and then close. Like, for example, I think we saw something that said in the CDC guidelines for schooling, if someone is showing signs of fever and if they are, if they do test positive for coronavirus, then the school might close for three days or something like that. Huh? Okay. If it's something like that, like I could be absolutely <clears throat> wrong, right? Okay. But, inside of these guidelines there's nothing that says here's consistency for when we open schools back up which means they're just going to open schools back up no matter what and then what should we expect because if it's not the flu and it's not seasonal does that mean that we should expect high rates of infection disease and death until a cure is found is, like, is that the well, Yeah, I mean, there's so many unknowns. So I'm not like, no one is qualified to answer that right now. That's mm -hmm. part of the problem. We have certain known things. We know that it spreads through the air on a droplet. And we know that wearing a mask can help. Um, we know that if kids are enclosed in a, in a classroom in close proximity, there's a risk factor. Um, we don't know if it's seasonal. We don't know like how that will play out. And we don't have treatment and we don't have a vaccine. Um, 
So to think like, to give a timeline on like, when is it safe? Well, what you could, there, there is an argument to be made that like we're willing, we are willing to reopen conditional and hospital availability, which doesn't mean we're going to be, actually it, it, it is safer to reopen when you have known ICU vacancy. And I do think that is a big difference between San Francisco and New York as well is because our ratios have always been so much different. When you get to a certain threshold in your hospitals and it turns into an exponential increase in, in admissions in the ICU or even in the lower acuity areas, you end up with a way lower quality of care for those individuals. At our hospital, we were able to like treat. We weren't just having one person with three or four patients. It was still one-to-one -one care because we staffed for it and, had, and were able to, to do it that way. So there's an argument to be made that we can let people get sick so long as there's hospital beds. That's an approach. And so if your city actually has hospital availability, mm -hmm go ahead and open, let people get sick until we can't handle it anymore. So that's not going to make you feel good. That just means like, okay, you have a bed if you get sick. And I do think that's what a lot of policies are doing right now. Wait till you have 30% vacancy, then enter stage two. That doesn't mean you're safer. It just means there's room for you at the hospital. So I, what I, what I took from that, a portion of that statement is <laughs> um, people, were dying at the hospital because they could not get care. Not I think that's a variable, not because I cannot say things are causal. I'm yeah. very cautious about that. We don't know why, mm. but it's another variable that didn't hit us the same way. Manhattan was very unique with that. Like I said, it's, it's 40 deaths total in the Bay Area or in San Francisco compared to like 80 a day right now. They were up to like, what, a thousand a day? I don't know where they were at at one point. So yeah, they didn't have the bandwidth to help anybody like that. Mm -hmm. But so yeah, so maybe like one argument could be made. Okay, let's open schools based on if we can admit the admit the parents and people who are impacted by it. <laughs> I don't mean that's that's it's a policy. I mean it makes sense, and it also makes sense as a function of access to healthcare services and ultimately economics, right? Because if I live in a, in, in an affluent part of town with plenty of new hospitals recently built, then I have access. But if I live in not an affluent part of town with no access to hospitals, or, or I'm a member of the rural community, right? Because we have, we have a, a, a vast expanse of, of rural living people in the uh, state of Texas, they mm -hmm. would not be able to open up because they don't have access to beds. Mm. But they never have access to beds. Oh. So that's more of the same. I don't, well, I don't know if they never have access to beds, but I think rural communities have like very um, unique circumstances when it comes to, they've always struggled with access to care because yeah, hospitals are so far away. One thing came out, um, I don't know what happened, but maybe right before coronavirus was about to hit, there was an article in the news about the last doctor or the last nurse leaving an entire region in Texas and people not having access to healthcare uh, because of, of where they were. And it had, mm -hmm. it, the, 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 um, the critique was on the healthcare system saying that, you know, it's unfair that this group of people don't have access. 
but then it connected the healthcare decisions to their political alignment, right? So it was like, you voted for the person who closed your hospital. Uh, but, but then we got into coronavirus and it was like, everybody screwed. And now, you know, to your point, I, I think you mentioned about the 40% of Hispanics um, being most affected. I looked at the Texas uh, COVID dashboard and they've got it broken out by uh, race and ethnicity, and then also zip code. And my zip code actually has a very high concentration of COVID cases. Not necessarily deaths, I don't think, but cases in general. Yeah, cases but of the, deaths are different. But we have a high concentration because we also have a high concentration of Hispanics. And then, you know, in, in Travis County in general, I think, 50% of the deaths in something like, I don't know, maybe 50% of the cases or 50% of the deaths, maybe 50% of the deaths are of um, Hispanics, but they represent only 18% of the community or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, that there's lots of that happening. Yeah. But um, it's, it's crazy, right? So it's yeah, like, it's if you totally are crazy. a member of this community, good luck, but everybody yeah. else is fine. And therefore we're willing to open. Right. Yeah, that's what's happening. It's wild. You know what is a little bit like could be a little bit of a win though with this is like as we learn more about um, telehealth, we might be able to get like more access out to some of these rural areas as we get better at hmm. at telehealth stuff. Just for like clinic stuff, this, that, and above. Like we're everyone's starting to use that a lot more. Yeah, we're actually working on a campaign right that. So I lead a nonprofit that's all about expanding the tech industry to communities from the global majority, so specifically Black and um, Hispanic. But with everything going on, we know that this has definitely impacted those that are low income, underserved, or underrepresented across spectrums, including those that are in rural communities, those that are elderly. Uh, so we have a citywide campaign right now and pushing um, for regional support across Texas to push te Texas technology for all. Uh, so definitely agree with you that having access to um, the internet will be one of them, and COVID-19 has shown the importance of having access, and that's access to food, health, internet, technology, etc. Um, but there's one thing I wanted to go back and comment on when we were talking about um, it, it could be a policy to open up based on the number of beds, and I, I was going to respond to that and say that is a horrible policy because you have no idea as to like why the beds are open, because to your point, it could be maybe they didn't get enough help. It could be because they died. It could be because they got cured. It could, it's numerous reasons. But when I think, when I hear about um, the, I think, what was it called? I forgot what, what term it was, but pretty much the number of people and individual um, effects. I'm not sure if it was like three point something or like how many new cases are happening per day. When that number oh. gets as close to zero, then we could start talking about opening back up because that to me is the biggest uh, indicator about whether or not this this um, th this virus is controlled, um, but that's my opinion. I'm curious of your thoughts. My opinion is it's crazy we're opening anything back up. I mean, I work in healthcare. My whole angle is like keep people alive. There's not like what you can't like work if you're not alive. The economy mm -hmm. can't function if you're not alive. Like there's nothing more valuable than human life. So I air I am. I like to call myself pro-life just in the context of COVID, nothing else. Um, I am pro-life for this. Like, I don't know why that isn't, like, that's it. Like, we are here, at, like, I don't know. That's, I am not, like, I will knock it in a, 
and I will not go to a pool party right now. I will not go to the pizza parlor and sit inside with a whole like little league team. Like I won't do it. Um, I just, I see no reason to increase my risk at this point, given what we know, which is like, we don't, the, again, I keep saying this to my friends, like the virus has not changed. Nothing has changed. The only thing that has changed is we have seen the ramifications of poor government policy and a poor distribution of like money to support those who struggle and a, a poor, like we've seen, we've seen failure. So like that doesn't make me think, okay, the solution to bad policy is to expose ourselves again mm. to this virus. I just don't get it. And on that note, we're going to close out of Culture Crawl ATX podcast. We thank you so much for listening. And we ask that you take this time to follow Culture Crawl ATX on Instagram and click that like button and follow on your favorite podcast listening platform.